Hello, readers. Jocko Willink was a U.S. Navy SEAL for 20 years, rising to the rank of Commander of Task Unit Bruiser, the most decorated special ops unit of the Iraq War. After retiring, he co-founded Echelon Front, a multi-million dollar leadership and management consulting company, and he's the New York Times best-selling author of Extreme Ownership, Discipline Equals Freedom, The Dichotomy of Leadership, and the book we're talking about today, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Jocko, thank you for the time. How are you today? Outstanding. Jocko, what separates leadership strategy and tactics from some of the other excellent leadership books that you've published? One of the things that I notice as I work with different companies for our leadership consulting company is even when sometimes people understand the principles, they're not really quite sure how to apply them. And I think people miss out on the fact that leadership is a skill. And leadership is a skill like like learning to play basketball. There's First of all, there's personal individual skills that you can develop, like how to shoot a jump shot or how to shoot a layup or how to do a bounce pass. But then also you're, you can conduct maneuvers out on the basketball court. You can call, you have plays to call, plays to run. And so that's what leadership has that as well. And I just wanted to break some of those down and make it very clear that for a leader, when situations unfold, there are plays that you can call, there are techniques, strategies, and tactics that you can use to overcome leadership challenges. A concept that comes up throughout this book is referred to by you as decentralized command. What is decentralized command? Decentralized command is actually pretty straightforward to explain. What decentralized command means is everybody leads. And that is what you want as a leader. You want everybody on your team to lead. Now, immediately you might think of, okay, I've got a team of 10 people and they're all leaders. They're all going in different directions and nothing's getting done. Well, with decentralized command, you still have to lead. And what the way you lead with decentralized command is you make sure that everyone understands what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. And then you allow them to go out there and execute on their own to move towards the strategic goal. That's what decentralized command is. And it's, it's absolutely critical for any team to be able to move quickly, adapt, and make decisions out on the field when the boss might not be right there. Why is being able to detach a foundational quality of a good leader? Well, there's not anyone who makes good decisions when they're emotional. And so from an emotional standpoint, if you as a leader get wrapped up in your emotions, you're going to make bad decisions. So you have to learn to detach from your emotions so that you can see clearly what's really happening. And then from a more pragmatic perspective, if you've got a team that's got a task and you get buried in with the team doing that task, well, now instead of looking up and out at where you should go next or what your next move could be, should be, you're all wrapped up in the task at hand. And as a leader, you shouldn't be doing that. You need to take a step back, detach, and, and lead the team in the right direction. You describe in this book that early on in your time with the SEALs, you had contrasting pl- platoon commanders. The first one was really bad in yours and your cohort's opinions. The second, who is nicknamed Delta Charlie in the book, was fantastic. Now, there were plenty of differences in their leadership styles, including how they would get you and your fellow subordinates to carry out a task. What was the difference between the good and bad and how each went about having you guys take care of that job? The biggest difference was the good leader was humble, the bad leader was arrogant. And the way this came across when it came to giving us a task, if the 
bad leader, if we got assigned a mission from the bad leader, he would tell us what the mission was, how we were going to conduct it, who we were going to take, what weapons we were going to use, what route we were going to use to get to the target. He would tell us every detail and dictate them to us. The good leader, who was more humble, he would tell us what the mission was, and then he would say, go ahead and come up with a plan on how you want to execute it, and then get back to me. And so when he did that with us, first of all, we felt empowered. And second of all, we truly took ownership of the plan because it was our plan. And that speaks to this idea of decentralized command. It also speaks about relationships and a leader having good relationships with the people above, below, and beside him or her in that chain of command. Why are relationships so important for a leader? Well, anyone that thinks that a leader can lead just based on their rank and barking orders at people hasn't really been in a leadership position. Look, you can get away with that for a little while, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe even six months. But eventually, people don't respect you anymore. They don't have any ownership because all you're doing is barking orders at them, and they don't want to work for you. Whereas the, the, the opposite is true when you actually allow people to, to come up with plans to take ownership. That's what we want. That's how we want our, our subordinates to feel. You talk about the need to appease the boss, to play the game in a sense, to do what is being asked without complaint in an effort to gain trust and confidence in that leader. But what if you have a bad boss? What if you have somebody who constantly lies to get their way or uses heavy-handed or hostile approaches to make things happen? How would you handle something like that? Well, what I'm going to try and do is form a good relationship with my boss. That, that's what I'm going to do. And if my boss is heavy-handed, I'm going to try and still form a good relationship with them so that, I can, so that I can have influence. Let me ask you this. If I'm a hostile boss and you work for me and you butt heads with me and have an antagonistic relationship with me, is, our, is your life going to be better or is it going to be worse? Worse. Exactly. Now, if your life is worse and we have a very bad relationship and we don't communicate with each other, are we less effective as a team or more effective as a team? Less effective. Yeah. So what if, even though I'm a little heavy handed, you still, I, I still listen to you and I take your input and you give me offer, offer good suggestions and we move in that direction. That's going to be better. That's what's going to happen. So even in these tough situations, you still want to form a good relationship with your boss so that you can have influence over them. You, you, you don't have influence over people that you don't have relationships with. What about somebody, what about a leader who does stretch the truth at times? You write in this book about how important truth and honesty are in, uh, in determining leadership qualities. What if you do work with a boss who has no problem lying to get their way? Well, again, if I call my boss out as a liar, how does that work? What's going to happen, right? All I do is separate myself. But if I try and build a relationship and then say, hey, boss, you know, the guys kind of know what's going on. And if we don't tell them what's happening, they're going to see right through it. We, we, you know, let's, let's really tell them what's going on. And you can actually influence your boss. Whereas if you don't have a good relationship with them, then you won't be able to, and they'll continue lying. Now, look, if people are doing things above you in the chain of command that are illegal or immoral or unethical, there's a line in the sand where you as a leader have to say, you as a leader, you as a person, you as a human being have to say, okay, you know what, this, this is not the right thing to do. And you, you may need to make a stand. You know, I talk about in the book, we had a mutiny against one of our platoon commanders. So things can come to that, but that it should be a very small amount of times that that actually happens. Most of the time, you got a boss 
look, they're not a great leader. They're not a perfect leader. They make mistakes. They say things they shouldn't say. Don't form an antagonistic relationship with them. Get to know them. Build a relationship. That way you can influence them in the right direction. This book is an excellent guide for people who are natural leaders, but there are plenty of people out there who don't necessarily possess those natural leadership traits. How does someone who lacks that natural leadership skill or style become an effective leader? Look, there's no one that is, well, there's very few people that are born amazing leaders. Most of us have struggles. Most of us have areas of weakness. And how do you get better? The first thing you have to do is be humble enough to recognize what those areas of weaknesses are. Then you work to improve those areas of weakness. And the last thing that you do as a leader, if you've got an area of weakness, what you do is you try and build a team that's complementary to your areas of weakness. So if I'm, let's say I'm bad at, at paperwork and details, and you're good at paperwork and details, guess what? I'm going to bring you onto my team so you can complement my area of weakness and we can be stronger together. At the same time, you stress the importance of leaders knowing at least a little bit about how to do the jobs of his or her subordinates. Uh, why is that so important in your mind? Well, you got to understand what it is the people that are below you in the chain of command go through. You got to understand what they do. You don't have to be better at it than they are. You know, if I'm when I was a when I was a SEAL platoon commander, I wasn't a better shooter than the snipers were. I didn't know more about the radios than the radio man did, but I knew how to shoot those weapons. I knew how to use those radios. I understood it. Same thing on a on a construction site. You know, there's there's a guy on a construction site that drives a backhoe. He's going to be able to do it a lot better than me if I'm the foreman. But I better know what the capabilities of that backhoe are. I better have a good understanding of what the limitations are so that I can actually utilize it correctly. So you don't have to know everything, but you have to, at a minimum, be familiar with the jobs and skills of the people below you in the chain of command. Jocko, you also point out that good leaders aren't above helping out with any task that is going on within this team, regardless of how menial it may seem. How is picking up the brass exemplary of this? Yeah, so in the SEAL teams, we shoot a lot of weapons, and when you shoot weapons, you make a mess. You know, the, the brass casings, the brass shell casings can be spread out all over your ranges, and in the SEAL team, some of our ranges cover many square miles. So picking up the brass, which needs to be recycled and cleaned off the ranges, can be a pretty daunting and menial task. And it'd be real easy for someone in a senior position like myself when I was a platoon commander or a task unit commander to say, hey, you know what, guys, I've got some meetings to attend to. I'm not going to go out and do this arduous labor for the next two days in the hot desert sun picking up the brass. It'd be easy to make that kind of an excuse and get out of there. But what you really need to do as a leader is show that you are part of the team. And even when things are, are challenging, even when there's an arduous job, even when there's a job that no one wants to do, you get down there, get your hands dirty like everybody else and get it done. Now, does this mean that every single time you're picking up every menial task? No, you've got a job to do as a leader and, and you, need to, you need to figure out when it's the right time to do that and when it's the right time to get down with the boys and do some of the work. But to simply avoid the work, the menial tasks is a bad thing. It separates you from your troops. You don't know them as well. And it shows that you lack the humility to get your hands dirty. I think a lot of people assume when they think of leadership, they think of the person in charge of leading from the front. And you talk about this concept and when it is important to lead from the front, but you also stress the need for a leader to lead from the back at times. When should leaders lead from the back and why? Well, from a tactical situation, if we're entering a building to, to clear out bad guys, 
if I'm one of the first people to go into that building because I'm leading to the front, well, guess what? Immediately when I go in there, I've got to be in a firefight or I've got to got to get control of some enemy personnel that are fighting us. And all of a sudden, I'm not leading. I'm handling that tactical situation. So it's better as we approach the building, instead of me being the first or second person leading from the front, I'll let seven, eight, ten people go in ahead of me so that way they handle that tactical situation. When I step in, I can look at it from a leadership perspective and actually figure out what to do. And it's the same, it's the same thing in the business world. If we're, if we're planning a project and I get in the weeds planning the project, well, I'm going to lose track and lose sight of the big picture. So it's better for me to step back, let my team come up with a plan for the project, and then I can see it from a, a more elevated position where I offer more as a leader. Makes a lot of sense. Now, in extreme ownership, you talk about a popular phrase, there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Is there an exception to this rule in the business world? Yeah, I read about it in this new book. And the exception isn't what what people want it to be, because people want it to be, well, the exception is you could have a really, really bad team, and then it doesn't matter what the leader is. And that's not true, because if you're a leader of a bad team, guess what you do? You train the people, you mentor the people, or you get rid of the, pe- the bad people on the team. So that, that exception doesn't work. But the exception that does work is you can have a situation where you have a bad leader, but you have a really good team that has some leadership inside the team, and the team can still perform well, even under bad leadership. When is it right for a new leader to step into the role by making sweeping changes and when should a new leader take time, sit back, and observe before making some gradual changes in a new situation? Well, if you're a new leader stepping into a role of a team that's failing in their mission, you're probably going to have to go in there pretty aggressively and start making some changes. Clearly, things aren't working. Now, there's a chance that things weren't working because the leader you're replacing was so bad that when you step in, the team's ready to step up. That can happen. But when you're stepping into a situation where a team is failing, it's more likely that you're going to have to go in there aggressively and make some changes. If you're stepping in to take over a team that's doing their job well, there's no reason to come in off the top ropes and start making broad changes to how they're doing. What you should do is sit back, observe, learn how they're doing things, see what's working, see why it's working well, and then after you've assessed, you can start making some minor changes as needed. Speaks to that level-headed approach that you really stress throughout the course of this book. There's a concept that you bring up shortly after that in this book that I was fascinated by. What is iterative decision-making and why is it so important? Iterative decision-making is the idea of instead of making a big, bold decision with a lot of risk, instead of doing that, make small decisions that move you in the direction that your best guess thinks you should, should move. So instead of saying from a business perspective, oh, you know what, I want to I go into this new market area. I'm going to go and buy a big chunk of real estate with a huge overhead. I'm going to hire a bunch of people to run that, that area, and then we'll see how it works. Well, what happens if the market wasn't what you expected and now you've got this giant piece of property and you've got all these employees? Don't do that. Don't make a huge, bold decision like that. Instead, say, you know what, I'm looking at this new market area. I think it's going to be a good place to go. I'm going to do some market research first. I'm going to go survey some people. And then you go, oh, it looks like there is some interest. I'll tell you what, let's put a kiosk out there. Very low overhead. We'll hire one person, see what kind of response that gets. Oh, that worked well? Cool, let's put another kiosk in. And you can continue to make these small decisions until you get to where you want to be. But at any point, you could say, oh, yeah, we put the kiosk up, nothing worked, no one went. Check the marketing. Okay, maybe it's not what we thought, and we haven't 
invested anything too massive into this decision. So it's the idea of instead of making big decisions, make small decisions quickly and iterate, iterate upon them as you get feedback from the decisions that you made. I was also really blown away by your solution to a leader having to deal with a subordinate who constantly complains about things. What is your solution to that subordinate, uh, subordinate who constantly complains? I know this is counterintuitive, and it's one of the it's one of the it's one of the, it's it's the medicine that I use most often for helping people in leadership situations, and that is put that person in charge. If I've got someone that's naysaying, sitting in the back of the room, throwing throwing darts at the plan, next next mission, next project comes along, next task, I'm going to say, hey, hey, you know, Bill, uh, you seem like you've got some time, and and I and I respect you. Why don't you step up and lead this thing? <laughs> and then they're in charge, and now they start to realize how hard it is to be in charge. And they feel that responsibility, they feel ownership, they feel control over their fate, and that improves their attitudes. You are a champion for hands-off leadership, decentralized command, not micromanaging. When, if ever, is micromanaging a viable option? It's a viable option when people aren't accomplishing the mission or not taking care of the tasks that they're supposed to take care of. So if I'm working with somebody and they're doing what they're supposed to do and the job is getting done and it's going well... Yeah, I'll be as hands-off as you can possibly imagine. If I've got someone on my team that's not doing the mission, their job is not getting done, absolutely, I will micromanage them until they either get fixed or I have enough evidence showing that I need to get rid of them. Is it ever okay to quit on a mission or job that's not complete? This is another one of those things where everyone thinks, and it's true, this, one of the mantras of the SEAL teams is never quit. And, and that's how you get through the basic SEAL training. You don't quit. But the problem is when you get to a SEAL team or you get certain things going on in your life or you get certain things going on in your business where you've made a bad decision, you've taken the wrong course, and it's wrong, and you're now losing. And if you continue down the same course, you're going to lose everything. Well, guess what you should do then? You should quit. You should retreat. You should take a step back, assess your course, find another way to accomplish the mission, and move forward from a different angle. Not quitting when you're going to lose everything does not make sense. It's a, I understand the attitude. I get it. But there are times when a leader has to tactically retreat, regroup, and reattack from a different angle. I would imagine that comes with uh, quite a bit of experience as a leader, because as you said, uh, good leaders oftentimes want to see the thing through, even if it takes every ounce of effort to get there. But sometimes you just have to know when to cut your losses and move forward on the next job. What is the thread of why and why is that such a tricky concept for some leaders to really grab hold of? Yeah, this this is a big one. And and when we explain why to people, it 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 allows them to feel a sense of purpose behind what they're doing. And so I talk to leaders about this all the time. And one of the examples I wrote about in the book, and I'll break this down very simply, there's more detail, obviously, that goes with this. But if I say to you, hey, you need to work faster so that we can make more profit so that I can give more return to our shareholders, well, what kind of motivation does that actually provide you? The answer is not very much. You don't care about my shareholders. You don't care about putting your work in harder so they can have more money. But if what I tell you is, hey, listen, we, we, I need you to work harder, produce more, 
so that, yes, we can be more profitable, and absolutely, that will give some more money to the shareholders, but it will also allow us to reinvest money back into the business. It will allow us to spend more money on marketing, and when we spend more money on marketing, we're going to sell more widgets, and when we sell more widgets, we're going to have to produce more widgets, and to produce more widgets, we're going to have to hire more people, and when we hire more people, someone's going to have to be in charge of those people, and that's what I see you doing. You're, right now, you're on a frontline worker, but I want, I see in your future, as we grow, you having six, eight, ten people working for you, making more money as this company grows. That's why it's important right now for us to produce a lot and for you to go strong right now so we can grow this business. Your job's going to be more stable and you're going to have more opportunity in the future. He is Jocko Willink. He was a U.S. Navy SEAL for 20 years, rising to the rank of commander of Task Unit Bruiser, the most decorated special ops unit of the Iraq War. After retiring, he co-founded Echelon Front, a multi-million dollar leadership and management consulting company. And he is the New York Times bestselling author of Extreme Ownership, Discipline Equals Freedom, The Dichotomy of Leadership, and the book we were talking about today, Leadership, Strategy, and Tactics. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jocko, thank you so much for the time today, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.